Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Terrorist attacks have struck in Mindanao, an island of the southern Philippines, ahead of a vote today for greater regional autonomy. It's hoped the referendum will calm a region that has suffered violence since Spanish colonists arrived in the 16th century. As Lunar New Year celebrations continue, our correspondent heads to the heart of China's gold industry. The country often buys more than America and India combined, thanks in part to a New Year's gold rush. First up, the World Bank will soon have a new leader, and President Donald Trump will probably get to decide who. Today, he's expected to formally announce his nomination, senior U.S. Treasury official David Malpass. In some ways, he's quite a conventional Republican pick for an institution like this. What perhaps sets him apart is that he's been quite fiercely critical of the World Bank and other international organizations. And he's also quite hawkish on China in a way that could complicate his relationship with China if he were to become president of the bank. Simon Cox is our emerging markets editor, based in Hong Kong. He was early on a supporter of the Trump presidency. He served uh, the Reagan administration. He served the first Bush administration. Uh, He then was a chief economist at Bear Stearns, the ill-fated investment bank. Last month, Jim Kim resigned from the presidency, leaving an empty seat at the head of the world's most influential development bank. The World Bank's mission is to fight poverty all around the world, and it does that in various ways. The simplest part of the World Bank collects money from rich country governments and gives it to very poor country governments for a whole variety of purposes, building roads, immunising children, hiring teachers. A slightly more controversial and complicated bit of the bank can actually borrow itself uh, on international markets. And then it lends this money to middle-income countries, countries like China, again, for development purposes. Simon, how does the World Bank president selection actually work? Does Mr. Trump's pick automatically get the appointment? So the candidates for World Bank president have to win a majority vote from the board of the World Bank. And the board represents all of the shareholder countries and their voting power reflects the amount of money they've stumped up for the bank. So America, which has provided the most money to the bank, has the most voting power, but it doesn't have enough on its own uh, to secure its nomination. By tradition, though, it can count on the support of the Europeans. There's a convention that the Europeans will support America's pick for the World Bank, and in return, the Americans will support the Europeans' pick for the IMF. So throughout the entire history of these institutions, the IMF has been led by a European and the World Bank has been led by an American. This time around, there was some question about whether this convention would hold, whether Trump would pick a candidate who was sufficiently credible to win the support of enough countries. 
there was a thought that if he picked someone who was too far out of the mainstream, perhaps some of the emerging economies, countries like India, China, Brazil, Indonesia, might rally around and try and break the stranglehold that the Americans have had on the institution in the past. And so is Mr. Malpass then credible by that test? On paper, he certainly is. Uh, He has the right sort of credentials for this role. What might give some countries pause, however, is some of his rhetoric. One of the stated requirements for the job is to show a firm commitment to and an appreciation of multilateral cooperation. But one of uh, Mr. Malpass's favourite quotes is to say that multilateralism has gone too far. Aside from being against the institution kind of on principle alone, do you agree with some of his criticisms of the World Bank itself? Mr. Malpass has a quite traditional small government cynicism or scepticism about what he sees as unaccountable bureaucracies. Uh, He thinks they become too interested and invested in their own growth. They're not responsive to the market. They're not responsive to uh, their shareholders. Now, he clearly has a point. Uh, It's quite difficult to hold an institution like the World Bank accountable because its mission is so diffuse and because it answers to multiple governments. So his criticisms are long-standing, valid, shared by many people. It's more difficult to know what you can do about it. Uh, most attempts to trim the World Bank's mission come up against the problem that it's often the member country governments themselves that want to add to its duties. But it's not necessarily healthy to have someone at the helm who is completely against it as an idea. I mean, what, what kind of impact would it have on the World Bank and its sort of member states if he were to be chosen? I think one problem would be the impact on the staff. If he doesn't really believe in the World Bank's value as an institution, then it's quite hard to motivate the staff and morale could dip. I think he'll also have some difficulty with one of the bank's most important shareholders and most important borrowers, and that's China. Uh, China still borrows a great deal of money from the World Bank. The World Bank has a long and, to be honest, quite interesting and successful history in engaging with China. Um, David Malpass seems unusually suspicious of that engagement. He seems to think that the influence is malign on the World Bank rather than the World Bank's influence being benign on China. And what do you make of that? I mean, do you think that a healthy and open relationship with China is critical to the day-to-day functioning of the World Bank? I think a relationship with China does redound to the benefit of the World Bank. A lot of what the World Bank does, a lot of the influence it has is policy advice. And its advice tends to be more effective if relationships of trust build up between officials and uh, World Bank staff members. And that's easier to do if you're lending a variety of projects at a time. So I think a distancing from China could be damaging to its overall purpose and mandate. And there are a whole variety of countries that you know, can learn from China for all of the criticisms that we make and should be made of China's policies in a whole variety of areas. It has been successful in reducing poverty And those lessons can be drawn on by other countries. And so what do you make of the evident intention here by the Trump administration to appoint yet again another head of a department, head of an institution who is a vocal critic of that institution? So the Trump administration is clearly interested in reforming the World Bank, in trimming some of its bigger ambitions, in limiting its lending, in restraining the salary costs of the staff. But one could argue that it's healthy for an international bureaucracy to be led by someone who has a temperamental suspicion about the dangers of bureaucratic overreach and bureaucratic sprawl. And it's also perhaps not the worst thing that the Trump administration has picked someone who's a serious critic. At least they're serious. 
because you could imagine the Trump administration not caring enough about the World Bank to pick someone credible, even a critic. You could imagine them picking someone who lacked all credibility and signalled their disengagement from institutions of this kind. Right. Simon, thanks for helping us find the silver lining. Thank you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today, a referendum in Mindanao, a troubled and poor region in the Philippines, offers a chance to calm a centuries-old conflict. Mindanao is known to many as the home province of the country's president, Rodrigo Duterte. As the mayor of Davao City, he was known for the same bluster and ruthlessness for which he has become notorious on the world stage. I told the the criminals not to it here in the city. Mindanao is a very lawless place, much less developed, uh, less densely populated than the rest of the Philippines. Edward McBride is our Asia editor. It also happens to be home to the uh, Muslim minority in the Philippines, though the vast majority of them live there. This Muslim population has had an uneasy relationship with the rest of the country. Certainly for 50 years, there have been uh, uh, armed insurgencies in the southern Philippines uh, campaigning for independence for the, uh, the Muslim majority areas. But really, the, the, the problem goes back even further than that. It, it goes back to the 16th century when the, when the Spanish colonialists first arrived. The, the vast majority of the population of the Philippines uh, converted to Christianity. Christians were, were sent to settle Mindanao. It's less densely populated. Uh, Muslims were looked down on. Certainly Muslims just don't have nearly so big a part in public life in the Philippines. And conflicts still abound in Mindanao. As the state battles with groups wanting autonomy, religious militants, restive clans, and insurgents complicate the politics. To try and quell the violence, the Philippine government has wavered between brutal repression and various forms of devolved government. The local government has the power to raise taxes. It has a local assembly. They're allowed to pass local laws, including some based on Sharia law. A two-part referendum in Mindanao offers the chance to expand the powers of the local government even more and for more areas to join the overall autonomous region. But the referendum process is being carried out amid outbreaks of violence. Yesterday, four explosions were reported in towns that are voting today. After the first referendum, a bomb was clearly targeted at Christian worshippers. On January 27th in in Holo, which is an island in the southern Philippines, uh, two bombs went off outside the cathedral on the island. The first blast happened inside the cathedral. The second went off outside as government forces were responding. 20 people were killed, scores more injured. The attacks came right in the middle of mass on Sunday. The president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, added today, quote, we will pursue to the ends of the earth the ruthless perpetrators behind this dastardly crime until every killer is brought to justice and put behind bars. Edward, about these these attacks in January, did anyone claim responsibility? 
Yes. So uh, Islamic State, uh, the same Islamic State that operates in Iraq and Syria, issued a statement claiming responsibility for the attacks. But the president, uh, Rodrigo Duterte, blamed a local terrorist group called Abu Sayyaf. They have been operating in the southern Philippines for a long time. And uh, in particular, they were responsible or a faction of Abu Sayyaf was responsible for the biggest uh, terrorist incident in the southern Philippines uh, recently when uh, a group of armed men took over a, a city in Mindanao called Marawi. At the time when they took over Marawi, they pledged allegiance to Islamic State. And I, that's why the president is blaming Abu Sayyaf based on the Islamic State claim of responsibility. Do we know why this attack came now? Islamic State didn't explain why they were attacking. They just said they were you know, striking at a, a crusader temple, they called the cathedral. But it seems that it couldn't possibly be a coincidence that the area, including Holo and, and a good part of Mindanao, had just voted in a referendum to decide whether to enhance the local autonomy for the for the Muslim-majority areas. The thing I don't understand, though, Edward, is that there seems to be this process towards more autonomy, towards uh, a greater recognition of this this Muslim-majority area. Why the terrorism? Why, why are people trying to, to interrupt that process? Well, so the problem is the southern Philippines is poor. It's true of Mindanao in general, and especially true of the of the Muslim regions. Obviously, it's related to all the violence that's that's carried on in the region for so long. But there are lots of, of unemployed, disaffected young men who are easy recruits for extremist groups. They're the ones who've been providing the foot soldiers of these insurgencies over the years. And um, even though some form of autonomy ha- has already been in place and, and the autonomy is going to become even more expansive, so far it hasn't yielded much in the way of development and jobs. And and that's what the government is hoping, that if there's a an inclusive enough political solution that, that draws in you know, most of the different Muslim insurgent groups, if that in turn allows enough calm for prosperity to grow, then maybe there'll be a sort of virtuous cycle and it'll become harder to recruit people to mount attacks like the one we saw in Holo. And so how does the the, the central government feel about this? Is this sort of a a reluctant giving up of of control? Mr. Duterte is is very enthusiastic about um, this project. He is from Mindanao himself, not not part of the uh, Muslim area. The other thing I should mention, though, is part of Mr. Duterte's image. He's a, he's a tough guy. That was his thing as mayor. He, he's obviously most famous around the world for instituting this uh, war on drugs, which has cost many, many lives of sort of small-time users and, and pushers. And in keeping with that image, Mr. Duterte has been wielding a stick as well. He uh, declared martial law after the uh, attack I mentioned on the city of Marawi earlier. I had to declare martial law in the Mindanao group of islands. On the one hand, he, he's, he's hoping that uh, those who are willing to participate in the political process will take to this you know, enhanced form of autonomy. On the other hand, he, he's sending the army to, to try and root out any insurgents that are still fighting. Do you, do you think what's going on, uh, on on Mindanao kind of offers any wider lessons for, for the, you know, other parts of the region where there are these kinds of separatist tensions? You know, this has been decades in the making, this, this autonomous area. And it clearly has yielded results in the sense that the, there used to be a sort of proper armed insurgency, a guerrilla group, several guerrilla groups, in fact, in the southern Philippines. And now 
in spite of the bombing, uh, we're down to, you know, really sort of the ragtag remnants of the absolute extreme fringe. Authorities in Manila stuck to this peace process through thick and thin for several decades, and it really finally does seem to be sort of coming to a fruitful close. The bad part is that even when things are clearly moving in the right direction, even so, there still is a an extreme fringe that really doesn't like any deal doesn't really want to negotiate over anything, just wants to play a spoiling role. And, and unfortunately, I think that's, that's what those bombings reflect, and there's no very simple way of, of solving that. Edward, thanks very much. Uh, no problem. Thank you. It's Chinese New Year, and at Economist Radio, we've been taking a look at the holiday through a number of lenses. Take Baizhou, a Chinese spirit made from sorghum. Colleagues on Money Talks, our sister business and finance podcast, were sampling this stuff as they talked about how Chinese producers are trying to take Baizhou global. I couldn't miss the chance to have a little sip. Jason, you've lost the capability of speech. This is bad for a podcast host. I'm, I'm trying to explore the flavors and get past the 52% alcohol. It just reminds me a bit of my experiences siphoning petrol in my youth. <laughs> oh, it's not that bad. Come on. <laughs> it's certainly better than the uh, the last time I tried Baijiu. Money Talks is out every Tuesday. Now, what about those enjoying the new year in China? After a long trip home, people have been feasting with their families and giving gifts. In the past few decades, China has grown tremendously richer. And so naturally, as a result, gifts at this time of year have become a lot more luxurious. People are willing to spend more. And so they're buying a lot more gold jewellery. Stephanie Studer is our senior China business correspondent based in Shanghai. Soon after Chairman Mao came to power in China, uh, he banned citizens from owning gold outright. And that ban lasted until 2004, officially. Now things are looking very different indeed. So we travelled to a little city called Beigao. What makes Beigao a little different is that along this 600-metre stretch of, of street, you have at least 20 different gold jewellery shops. When we were there in anticipation for the Chinese New Year, the shops were um, decked out in red and gold, there was music blaring from uh, shop doors. Um, let's back up a bit. How is it that Beigao became this sort of the centre for the gold trade? Well, we met the owner of the jewellery store. That was set up in 1998, but in fact, it began in 1908 with his great-grandfather, who first started in Beigao. And the village, it was then just a, a small seaside place, became known for its jewellery techniques. And he, he told me tales of how when gold ownership was banned, they sort of had to go underground. They decided to branch out and fix people's jewellery across China until they could again officially trade gold. Um, and now that it's possible to do that, how much gold are people actually buying? The Chinese are buying an awful lot of gold jewellery. It's around 600 tonnes a year. That sounds like a tonne. Well, I mean, tonnes and tonnes of gold. Yes, in fact, for a number of years since 2013, that demand is equivalent to American and Indian gold jewellery demand combined. So this has been a a dramatic increase. 
And naturally, you can see Beigao itself changing. This relatively small town by Chinese standards is now just awash with construction sites. There are uh, houses there. The sort of mansions, seven, eight, nine stories. And it was interesting to hear from local businessmen and officials how much things have changed. They spoke to me about times just in the 1980s when there weren't enough sweet potatoes to go around. This was a staple crop. And now we're sat at the table eating puffer fish for lunch. So all of this wealth is being generated in, in jewellery sales. This is not about gold as an investment in, in bars and ingots and, and what have you. Yes, that's right. And in fact, that's been one of the major changes in the China gold jewellery industry. Young people now want to have more interesting jewellery. In the past, their parents would buy, you know, pretty clunky, heavy gold chains in Shanghai, we met Li Dongmei, who's the chairwoman of a, uh, a well-known jewellery brand here called Chonghuang. This company began in mining and then bought Chonghuang a few years ago to get into the retail end. She mentioned to us that uh, her daughter, who's 22 years old, likes gold and likes the new products that she is putting in her stores, but wouldn't want to go into one. And her daughter said... But, you know, I might if you offered gold leaf ice cream. And so Miss Lee told us that she was thinking of introducing that as well as perhaps in-store coffee stands as well in order to attract more young buyers. Right. So at, at the retail end, at this sort of less blingy end, this, this growth looks set to continue. It certainly does look set to continue. In Beigao, we also visited uh, an industrial park for the gold industry, which has received 3 billion yuan in investment. And uh, it's going to have factories and dormitories for workers. They're hoping to appeal to some of their migrants who left the province and they want them to come home. It also has a gold-coloured 26-floor skyscraper. Uh, Of course it does. Stephanie, thank you very much. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.